Today's episode is brought to you by Yunt Street Glass. Yunt Street Glass makes jewelry and accessories from recycled wine bottles. Located in the heart of Napa Valley, Yunt Street Glass is perfectly situated to upcycle the beautiful glass that cradled beautiful wines. Check out YuntStreetGlass.com to learn more about Yunt Street Glass and their handcrafted eco-friendly products. Be sure to enter the code NAP, N-A-P, at checkout for a 15% discount on your next order. Thank you so much, Yen Street Glass. And now, here's the show. Today, we're talking about building a career as a modern quilter with my guest, Jen Carlton Bailey. In a previous life, Jen Carlton Bailey probably sold you a pair of jeans or khakis at the Gap. Today, you'll find her covered in thread and searching down the latest inspiration for a quilt. A self-proclaimed master at curves, she finds pleasure in creating quilts with secondary patterns that make you stop and wonder. Originally from Utah, Jen found her way to Portland, Oregon, via Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Seattle. While Portland is amazing, she misses the dry desert and the Rocky Mountains. Jen has a love for cats, cats on quilts, cats wearing costumes, baking, sewing, gin rummy, fabric, vespas, and the Oxford comma. Jen has no love for radio, socks, wool, because she's allergic to it, Candyland, and being called Jenny. Find her at <laughs> BettyCrockerAss.com. Jen Carlton Bailey, welcome. Thank you. Every time I hear that read out loud, I giggle a little because that is kind of a funny profile to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it sums you up um, probably pretty well, and it's very personal, which I love in a profile. So I would say well-written. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. So um, so we were supposed to record this at QuiltCon, but you got pneumonia. So I'm glad you're feeling better. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to have my real voice back. Yes, <laughs> I am too. So, and then I lost my voice. So we had to postpone again, but finally we're here. So um, I know that you are a pretty private person. Um, you don't often give interviews. And when I went to do some research for our talk, I actually came up sort of empty handed, which is unusual because I am a really good Google searcher. So <laughs> I appreciate your willingness to open up and tell us a little bit about your story on the show today. Sure. I'm, I'm glad I did a, an excellent job at kind of hiding myself a little bit. Um, I told you in an email that once upon a time when I worked at The Gap, I had a couple stalkers. So that's long past and I'm just rebuilding my internet presence. But that is why I was I was a little secretive. Yeah. And I think you're not alone, but, you know, in, in wanting to be private. Um, but it is hard actually to be private. Um, some people think that they're you know, pretty private. And, uh, my husband is also a really good Google searcher because he does it for his job. And so, um, we will be able to find out a whole lot of different things about people, but you are a hard nut to crack. So, um, so this is going to be good. So, so you grew up in Utah and your family is Mormon. And I wondered, um, if they sewed and quilted when you were a kid. They did. My mom was constantly sewing. She made all our clothes, which was a little embarrassing when I was in first grade, the plaid polyester pants that were a bell bottom, I would constantly tuck into my fur faux leather boots as I was walking to school because I was embarrassed they were bell bottoms. Um, and she quilted as well. She constantly had a wooden frame. She didn't quilt the quilts with a sewing machine. She would tie them. So there was I don't ever remember a time when there wasn't a quilt frame set up in our living room. And I remember constantly asking her, like, teach me to sew, teach me to sew. And she's like, no, I don't have time. And she would just constantly just keep sewing and sewing and ignore us. I was like, okay, I guess I don't get to learn how to sew. So maybe for and her, sewing was more of an escape from day-to-day -day reality versus it being something that she wanted to sort of bring into your day-to-day -day reality. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it was also a necessity. You know, we grew up a little poor and 
and fabric was a plenty in the Mormon church and people shared it. So I think making our clothes and making our Halloween costumes, that's what she did because that's what she had to do. Can you talk a little bit about why fabric was a plenty in the Mormon church for people who are not LDS and maybe don't know a lot of other people who are Mormon or just don't necessarily have like insight into what the Mormon sort of culture is like. Can you just explain a little bit about sort of handicrafts and why that's an important part of being Mormon? Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'll totally hit it on the head, but when I grew up, we always made our own clothes. We cooked our own food. We canned our own food. We were always getting ready in case something happened, in case there was an apocalypse. We all knew how to do stuff by hand. We would have a storage full of food that we could feed our family with. And it was just a really important part of our culture to be able to craft and do things on our own. Um, We had weekly weekly events for young women where you would learn to sew, you would learn to craft the, the guys learned how to build things. It's just kind of how it was. And I, I guess I've never really stopped and thought about it because I grew up that way. And sometimes in my head, I think everyone grew up that way until I stop and think. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that there's a lot yeah. of people who are, you know, religious or religiously affiliated, um, but not Mormon. And um, and perhaps, you know, uh, being self-sufficient that way or being able to make things, you know, on your own um, in a sort of survivalist sense, I guess, is not necessarily part of all of the world's religions. But maybe it's a part of being Mormon in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be able to take care of yourself when when the apocalypse help hits. And that's what we did. I used to hide when I was a little girl in our canning storage and eat canned cherries all the time because <laughs> they were so good. I still miss that flavor. Oh my god. But we had a my to this day my dad is he's the only one left in his household and he his his food storage is bigger than my dining room. Like it's ginormous. And I go down there, I'm like, Dad, can I have this? I'm gonna go ahead and take all this stuff. So, and sewing was a part of that. There was, um, people always shared what they had. It was a very sharing community. So if someone got fabric donated, it would be in what we called the cultural hall. This is where people would go and have little parties and you would sew in there as well. So there would always be mounds of fabric, almost like today when I go to my guild and we have a table, a sharing table where people bring in fabric they don't want or scraps. It was the same kind of thing. So my mom always had all this random fabric in the house that she would take from the church. I see. Okay. I think that's interesting background for people. And, um, and so you were, it sounds like you were interested in learning or sort of curious about it, but maybe she wasn't that interested in teaching you. So did you learn through church or did you not learn really to sew until you were an adult? So Oh, like I said, I was always constantly asking my, my mom and it wasn't until I had kids and I started teaching them to sew that I realized why it's really hard to teach kids to sew, especially your own. So I had a little empathy there, but I didn't learn to sew until I learned briefly by my best friend that worked at the gap with me. We used to have craft or new nights and we'd go over and she had this really old sewing machine that you had. It was an air pump on the pedal. So you had to pump it to sew. And she taught me how to make a duvet cover where I cut out a template from a cardboard box and made a 10 by 10 square. Now, why I didn't just use a ruler, I have no idea, but I had to make a square template out of a piece of cardboard. So that took me about four years to make. And then I just dropped it. I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. So I had a brief stint in my 20s. And then when I had my daughter, Amelia, she was a preemie. She was born almost six weeks early. And in my state of uh, postpartum depression and euphoria and everything that goes along with having a brand new baby who weighs five pounds and in your arms and in a ventilator, you're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? There was this beautiful, beautiful hand tied quilt that she received. 
And all of the babies who are in the NICU in this hospital receive this beautiful handmade quilt from people who donate. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is so special. And I used to weep over it, weep over this beautiful quilt that was just given to my daughter. And so when I later on, about six months later, I was starting to feel better. And I went to my computer. I'm like, you know what? I want to give back. I want to learn how to make a quilt. So I Googled how to make a quilt. And that's how I Google. I don't Google quilt. I Google how to make a quilt. I got these quilts and I was like, eh, all right, those are kind of boring. And I thought, maybe, maybe I need something new or fresh. So I Googled how to make a modern quilt. Uh, hold on one and second. So you cut out for one second, possibly because of the storm. So okay. um, start from, I wanted something new or fresh. Okay. I wanted something new or fresh. So I Googled how to make a modern quilt. And from there, oh my goodness, my mind was completely blown. I landed on Amanda Jean Nyberg's website, Jackie Gehring's, um, John Quilt Dad. And from there, it just, I just taught myself how to do it via all those blogs. I found an old sewing machine. I went and got it. I spent $100 on it. I was so excited. It's a Viking um, from 1972. It's a big tank. And I sat down and I literally taught myself how to sew from the internet. That's amazing. And I have to say, I, although I did learn to sew in eighth grade in home economics and bought a sewing machine then, um, I didn't really learn how to sew until after I had children as well. And I learned to sew from the internet. <laughs> so, um, I so I totally relate to that. And I'm imagining that many listeners, um, who maybe didn't learn when they were children, but did learn as adults learned that same way. Um, and I feel so grateful that we, um, have this incredible resource to be able to pursue things that we're interested in, you know? Right. If those people hadn't been writing blogs, I probably wouldn't have learned to sew. So even though blogs have kind of gone by the wayside, I am so grateful that they took the time to sit down and share their skill and share their idea. It's, it's such a heartwarming thing for me to, to, to have. Absolutely. So, okay. So as you were growing up, did you want to be an artist or did you have a different idea of like what kind of career you would pursue when you were an adult? I really wanted to be in fashion and I went to the Art Institute of Seattle. I wanted to not be on necessarily the design aspect of it, but more of picking fashions for stores. And I did that at the Gap. I used, I actually used what I went to school with. So that was really fun to be able to to be in fashion, which I think is still creative. I would merchandise my stores um, I would dress mannequins. I would set trends. I would talk to people in corporate about what we needed, what customers were saying. And, and that really fed that creative part of me. And then after I, I left the gap, I was there for almost 13 years. I went into Columbia sportswear. So I went from more of the, the fast fashion to, outdoor wear. And that was a little challenging. While it was still fun, it wasn't something that I was really passionate about. And then I had a baby and I needed a creative outlet. And I've always been creative in, in cooking and in decorating my house. And however I, you know, whatever I do, I use my creativity, but I needed something more. And that's where uh, quilting came in. And it really started with fabric. Fabric was really my jumping off point because I read somewhere that you needed to have a fabric stash if you wanted to be a quilter. So before I even bought my sewing machine, I bought a fabric stash. I literally started buying yards of fabric online and having it sent to me. And that's what I fell in love with was, was the fabric and looking at ways to cut it up and make it even more beautiful than it was. And I think that um, it's interesting having a baby Sometimes it's like this perfect pivot point. Um, I mean, some people, for some people it's not, and they go right back to the job that they had before they had a baby. Um, but for myself, and it sounds like for you as well, having a baby, it almost allowed you some space to sort of go in a different direction um, and maybe pursue something creative, pursue something that was generated 
on your own, self-generated. Um, yes. and, uh, and it kinds, it, it's sort of almost like a, a door opens when you have a baby, even though it can kind of feel like a door is shut. Right. I think it's how you look at it. And if, if you can stop for just a minute, comparing yourself to others and the fact that your baby doesn't sleep, but Susie's baby does that whole competitive. If you stop for just a second and go, Hey, you know what? I have a really great opportunity here to not only raise a kid, but also do something that makes me feel fulfilled as well. And, um, I had a friend that was able to just say, you know, Jen, you need a hobby. You need to do something. What is it that you love? And I didn't know. I had no idea because I was just kind of like, well, I guess I'm just a mom now. And I hate saying just a mom because that's, you're so much more, you're raising a human being to be a good person, right? You're doing all these other things, but I really had to stop comparing myself to others and look inside myself and go, you know what? you can do more than what you're doing right now. You, you have something that needs to be fulfilled. Go find it. Right. And that's what I did. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing thing. And, um, if you have the space financially, you know, to swing that it's, it can really be fantastic. Um, you know, just to take that time and figure it out. Yeah. I, I made with daycare. The reason I stayed home is because when we did the financials, daycare at the time was so expensive that I would have only brought home $400 a month, uh, putting my daughter in daycare and gas and time and travel and all of that. So there, my husband and I just looked at each other like, let's, let's wait and see what happens. Let's not go back to work and we'll budget and we'll work hard and, we'll, we'll stay at home and see what happens. And I I feel very lucky to have a partner that, um, was able to say that. Yeah, absolutely. And we did work hard. We struggled, but we did it. Yeah. I was, um, I was a public school teacher and, um, especially because I had two babies in two years, um, in order, the, the, the price for daycare, uh, would have been right. And when you're, when you're just teaching public school and, um, and then to also say like, I'm going to put my kids, um, have someone else, you know, sort of be with my kids while I'm with someone else's kids. It was sort of an odd trade off. So, um, so I understand what, what you're saying. It's really, you know, the way the, the United States structures childcare, it, it's a very hard deal. Um, so, so those years that you worked retail, I'm wondering whether, there were things about human behavior or about business that you gleaned from those years that you take forward into what you're doing now. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Um, you learn a lot about human behavior and how humans shop and really what it comes down to is emotion. It's, it's based on an emotional response. If you love something, you're going to buy it. You're going to find a way to buy it. Uh, you get this response where it's like, oh my gosh, that's so pretty. And from there, people buy. So I think creating beautiful things now help me understand that um, that's what's going to inspire people to either make something, like make a pattern that I made or use my templates or, or, um, mimic what I'm doing, which is a fun and strange experience all tied up into one. Yeah, for sure. And, and, um, I think back to that quilt that you got when your daughter was born and the, it sounds like really emotional response that you had that drove you to want to quilt. And I think for quilting, especially, um, these lifestyle, not lifestyle, these life, um, what am I trying to think of? Uh, like that, these, uh, changes sort of when you get married, when you are having a baby, we mark those life events. And oftentimes we give people something handmade and sometimes that's a quilt. And that can be for many people, the entree into quilting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, emotion really drives us. I, 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 I even looking at, I remember standing in the middle of my Gap Kids store at University Village, and I was with the president, Mickey Drexler. It was just him and I, and which is a huge thing. And I, I feel like, I think he's at J. Crew now. He might be somewhere else. But he's a really big force to be reckoned with. And for some reason, him and I had a connection. And I remember looking back at the back of my Baby Gap store, and we were looking at the posters 
the advertising campaign. And back then it used to be just spot on. And there were these babies that were in there and they were beautiful and angelic. And, and he's like, so why do you think we sold out of that item in that poster? Like, because look how beautiful it looks. Look at that baby's face. Look at its eyes. It's so emotional. And he looked at me, he's like, bingo, I like you. And I was like, oh my gosh, Ricky Dexler just talked to me. (laughs) He said he liked me, but that really stuck with me because it is emotional. And those life events that you're, you're talking about, Abby, really, uh, get people motivated. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Yonce Street Glass. Hi, this is Kay LaFranconi. I'm with Yonce Street Glass. And what is Yonce Street Glass? Yonce Street Glass makes jewelry and accessories from recycled wine bottles. We're in the heart of Napa Valley where there are plenty of empty wine bottles. And we use those empty uh, wine bottles and uh, repurpose them to make glass jewelry and accessories. The nice quality glass has a, a, a lightness to it. You, you hold it up to the light and it just shines. It's It brings the color to life when it's not filled with wine. Those glass bottles have such beautiful characteristics that can be brought out. The glass is really beautiful, as beautiful as the wine sometimes. We use uh, high quality argentium and sterling silver, and we do the the silversmithing ourselves. And we use that to uh, make the, um, the chains and the jump rings and the attachments. And it's a nice combination to the, the shine of the silver and the shine of the glass really makes a I think a lovely piece and I, I think it's really neat too that you're using cork and it's not the recycled cork from the wine bottles and can you tell, tell us why that is and and what kind of cork it is then the cork we get is is harvested in Portugal which is where all the nice cork comes from and um, those forests in um, the the cork forests are a sustainable product and they've been harvested by families over thousands of years. They're not destroyed when they're, when the cork is, is harvested from them. It's like shearing wool from a sheep in a way in that they, they uh, take the cork off. They wait another 10 years and they take another layer of cork off. It's a sustainable product. And it often is mistaken when we put it on our products, on our jewelry, it's often mistaken for leather because it looks like leather and wears like leather, but it's, it's not leather. Our website is yachtstreetglass.com. We sell online and we're very happy to provide a discount for listeners of Walshy Naps. Uh, if you enter the promo code NAP, N-A-P, you'll get a 15% discount on your next order at yachtstreetglass.com. Oh, that's wonderful and so generous. Thank you so much, Yacht Street Glass. And now back to my conversation with Jen. First of all, you hang on to handmade things you get um, at those life events. Like when you have a baby and somebody makes you a blanket, you're going to keep that blanket. You know, you're not going to, that's not going to be one of the things that you give away. Whereas like all the onesies in the, in the end get given away um, right. uh, or made into a quilt, but, <laughs> but mostly given <laughs> away. Um, but, you know, those handmade things you keep. And then it's also for some people that motivation to say, I want to make something like this and give it and give to somebody else. Um, so yeah, I think that's an emotional time to get someone. So, and also, you know, it's a, it's a good idea to bring into your own business to think about how your product can evoke emotion in people or the way you market that product. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like one of the first blogs that you came across or tutorials that you came across was on crazy mom quilts and it was like a wonky log cabin. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about sort of discovering that and then what you did with it? Yeah, I, um, so I, I first saw it and I was like, what? You can make things not straight. (laughs) And that, again, it just blew my mind because everything that had been around me, you know, was these perfectly cut blocks that my mom or her friends were doing. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So I remember the the exact quilt that I used. Hers was hers was these pink flowers. I could probably still pull it up at some point. But I had my daughter loved Olivia at the time. Olivia, the book character. And I found this Olivia fabric at this little fabric store by me. And so first of all, I learned about fussy cutting. 
So I was cutting around and I had no rulers. I had no rotary cutter. I was just using my scissors and I was cutting around all of the shapes. And I thought, now it's okay not to make it a box. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to cut this one at an angle. So I cut it at an angle and, um, it, it scared me at first, but then I followed her directions about start with the short side and then work your way around and make the pieces big enough so you can then trim them down. And that took me a really long time to grasp why I have no idea. It just, it, the concept was really hard, but I finally got it and I made four blocks of my daughter, Amelia's favorite Olivia character in red, white, and red, white, and black. And I did them all across horizontally of the quilt. And then I put fabric on the top and fabric on the bottom. And I was so excited about this. And I still, I still love that quilt. She uses it for her dolls now, but, um, it was a really big eye opener for me. And when I look at it now, I still think, wow, I did a really good job. I don't look at it and go, oh my God, I could have done so much better. I look at it and go, wow, that was really good. But I will say that was my only wonky quilt that I've ever made. While it was, I'm really proud of it. It wasn't my favorite thing to do in the end. But it sounds like it was freeing in some way that maybe you could kind of come up with something on your own. Yes, it was. It was. And um, I used Amanda Jean's blog for everything, binding, quilting, uh, seam allowance, any question I had. I went to her blog and I've never met her before, so she has no idea about any of this, but her blog was my sewing resource for everything. Wow. That's amazing. And that really speaks to the power of someone's blog. You just don't know. Somebody may be a lurker. They might not be commenting or telling you all the time that, you know, your resources are so useful and have changed their life, but they might be out there and really benefiting from all the efforts that you put in. Yeah, I should probably tell her that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that was that would be a good thing to say to her, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll ask her to listen to this show so then she'll <laughs> then she'll hear it from your from you right from you. So. Right. <laughs> um that's cool. So, um so that sounds like that was the first introduction to kind of maybe a, a modern style and um and I know that back this was sort of back in 2008ish it sounds like and yeah. um Flickr was the big Oh yeah, um, was the big social network, believe it or not, back then, and it was for me too. And I, I wondered if you could reflect a little bit, since you were an avid Flickr user on those days, and what it was about Flickr that felt special. I think with Flickr, it was it was a different way to share. Instead of words, you got pictures, and I think that most quilters are visual people. They don't, at least the people I hang out with, don't necessarily read the pattern, but they look at the pictures on how to do things. So Flickr, all of a sudden, you could show people what you were doing instead of just trying to explain it in words. And it became this instant gratification for people commenting on your picture or favoriting your picture. And it felt good. It feels like you know, Instagram does now when you get a like and you're like, oh, cool. Someone thinks I did a good job. You know, it's that instant, the val- not validation, validation, <laughs> validation. Yes. Thank you. That instant validation that you're, you're on the right track. And that's how Flickr was. And then there were groups. So you could be part of a group and share your Zaka style. I remember I was so excited when I made something that I thought was Zaka ish. And I put and it just in just to clarify, Zaka is like a term for cute in Japanese. And when we were all baby sewing bloggers and um, first got introduced to this Japanese sewing aesthetic um, and through many, for me at least, were Japanese craft books that I bought on Amazon Japan um, that you only could order by ISPN number. Like someone would give you the number because right. you couldn't put in the words because it was in Japanese characters. Um, yep. And so you'd put in the ISBN number and then order it from uh, Amazon Japan and then this book would come 
And, um, you know, everything was in Japanese, but it introduced us to this style that really in the U.S. prior to that wasn't mainstream. Right. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. I forget that, you know, not everyone <laughs> knows what Zaka is. And so, uh, you know, it was exciting. It was exciting. It was exciting when Rossi approved your quilt to be in the modern quilting um, I forgot the name of her group that she had, but, um, if you remember, that would be great. No, uh, I don't. I wasn't part of quilting then. Cause I was making stuffed animals. Well, I still make stuffed animals a bit. I wasn't following <laughs> the quilt world, but this is Rossi Hutchinson who was maybe, uh, moderating a modern quilting group on Flickr. Yes. Okay. I, I, I think it was her, her blog name, fresh modern quilting. Okay. And she approved the modern quilts that went into that, Flickr group. So when you got approved, it was like, yes, I'm in. I'm in. I'm, I'm great. I'm a modern quilter. And it, it's a really good feeling when that happens. So Flickr really brought people together. Yeah. And, and do you feel like Instagram, does it do the same job? I mean, does, does it work as well or just differently? I think it's different. Like, I don't feel... Like I have formed as close a connections with people on Instagram that I did on Flickr. For example, yesterday I got my hair done by one of my great friends and she was one of the first people I met on Flickr. The very first people person I met on Flickr, she lived on the East Coast and ended up moving to Portland about four years ago. And meeting her was so great because I saw, I think people on Flickr were less, um, less concerned about what their photos said about themselves. They shared their lives along with their quilting versus I think Instagram is more controlled. And maybe, maybe that's just because, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, professionalization of blogging that, I mean, when we say blogging, I'm talking sort of about the whole, your whole internet presence in general. Um, but yeah. professionalization that's happened in which, um, you know, those first six or first nine photos on your Instagram really need to be this brand story about you. Um, right. and if it's inconsistent or it's just like a blurry picture or one with poor lighting or something like that, but it's about your life, um, that's not going to cut it because it sort of, uh, erodes your brand or your online, you know, it's just, it's kind of, um, we've all, I don't know, evolved, not all of us, but many people have evolved into this sort of, you know, it's got to be a business. Um, and, and maybe back in those days, we didn't really realize that you could make money as a blogger, that this could become your career. Right. Yeah. And honestly, that's what I struggle with the most when I look at business in quilting and I, Instagram is super curated for a lot of people and I really try not to do that. And then I struggle with it. I'm like, well, I should have my brand and I know all the things that I learned in school and at the gap about the things I should do, but I struggled doing it because I still want to be Jen. I still want to be a real person because what you see on Instagram, all the dorkiness that I am, that's me in real life. And so I struggle with trying to be, think that I want to be professional and have a business and then be myself and do what makes me happy. And it's constant. It is every day struggle. Every time I post a photo, every time I say something online, I think about that and I struggle internally and I'm still struggling. I still don't know what I'm doing. And we still don't know. We didn't necessarily have that struggle on Flickr, right? Like, but now we do. And now we we do. And you're not alone. Like, I think that that's part of um, anyone who's sort of playing in the sandbox feels that way, um, at least to some degree, like this, you know, am I doing this right? Am I following the rules of of the way it's supposed to be or am I doing this sort of authentically to me and maybe that doesn't follow the rules and is that okay? Um, Am I helping or am I hurting my my future with this one photo of a leaf, you know? (laughs) Are people going to unfollow me because I posted a picture of my cat again? Right. Yeah, no. And, and, And it's, I mean, honestly, that stress is real. It is. And on Flickr, 
no one cared because we weren't curating. We were just sharing our daily lives. And that is what I miss about Flickr. Now, do I want to go back to Flickr? No, I don't. You know, I'm fine with change and I'm fine with looking at doing things differently. But that's what made Flickr Flickr, I think. Right. No, I, I totally hear you. And I, I wanted to talk about the name of your blog. So sure. um, so your blog is called Betty Crocker Ass. And right. um, I think, you know, I, first I want to hear the story behind how that name came to be. But I also wondered whether you do struggle with the name because it has the word ass in it, um, right. whether that sort of makes you at all feel like regretful or whether you're like, nope, I'm going to stick with it, whether you've gotten negative pushback about it or, you know, does it hamper your brand partnerships if you want to work with a fabric <laughs> company because they're not going to want to put Betty Crocker ass on their ass. site or, you know, so just tell us, talk to us a little bit about this name. All right. Well, um, I usually make people buy me a drink before I tell this Aww. story, but I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell it and then I'll, I'll say you owe me. Yeah, okay. Um, next time. <laughs> so I am in my, my alternate life is vintage Vespa scooters. And this is how I met my husband. I got into it from a coworker at the Gap who lives in Seattle. And she's like, you should come out and hang out with us. And centered around this culture is vintage Vespa scooters. So I have a 1965 Allstate, Sears Allstate actually. It's a, it's a death trap. It's two wheels and you can go 65 miles an hour and it, it weighs like 150 pounds. So it, um, this culture, you, you get with it friends. And I, when I moved to Portland, another friend moved down from Seattle with me and she and her husband bought a house about a mile or not a mile, a block away. She introduced me to her friend. Now remember, this is, this is not elementary school. This is, this is in our thirties. So that I just want to preface that, that we are grown women at this point. So she introduces me to her friend and her friend and I really hit it off, like really hit it off. And we start doing a lot of things together. Well, my original friend got jealous and she pulled her friend Angie aside and said, Jen is stealing you away from me. (laughs) She's always trying to manipulate people with her muffins. She's always cooking and baking. And, and she's just, She's just, and she, at this point, her, her fist clenched and her body shook. And she's like, she's just a Betty Crocker ass. And I'm overhearing this whole conversation. I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally am. I'm, I mean, she meant it as negative and I took it as positive. I'm like, yeah, sometimes I can be a jerk, but really I'm kind of Betty Crocker. I love to cook. I love home stuff. I'm constantly doing all these these homey things. And that's kind of who I am. And it, it became this joke and people started calling me that and I just adopted it. And that was 14 years ago. And so when I started my blog, I started it because, um, my family wanted to see pictures of my daughter and that was the best way to share it. I would just send them the link and say, here's what we're doing. Here's my blog. And I named, I couldn't figure out a name. So I named it Betty Crocker ass because at that point it was a name that all my friends in the scooter scooter community were calling me. And that's how I got that name. It's not because I have a big butt. It's not because I use Betty Crocker cake mixes. It's because that's what they called me. And has Betty Crocker, have they ever reached out to you? No, (laughs) I'm waiting for the day that someone does. I mean, it's been 14 years, 14 years that I've had that online and no one has ever said anything to me. Right. And would you name your blog that today? If you were starting a blog now um, and someone said, hey, that's a fun nickname. Why don't you use that nickname? Would you say yes or would you be like, "Mm, that's not going to go? I think I still would. I, I do. I struggle with my name. Like I struggle with my online persona. I, every time I go to change it, cause I've, I've changed it for like two weeks at a time. I get feedback. Why did you change it? 
that isn't you. That's not who you are. You're Betty Crocker ass. And I stop and think, and I'm like, you're right. I am. I just, I need to go with it. And I have a friend who's a marketing director and she does a lot of big companies here in Portland, big companies. And when she was helping me way back when with my logo, I said, you know, I think I really need to change my name. I don't think that ass is appropriate in my name. So she helped me come up with a name. And in the end, she finally pulled me aside and said, I don't think you should do it. People are so afraid of swear words. And I don't think you should. I think you need to stand up for who you are. And this is who you are. So I did it. But every couple years I go through and I totally change it. And people are like, I don't get it. Stop doing that. And so have you felt any limitations or have any, I mean, companies or anything like that, you know, reached out to you and said, can we just promote you as Jen Carlton Bailey or um, have, have companies been okay with that? Or maybe you don't work with companies. No, I do. I I work with uh, companies. I've done webinars. I work with the Modern Quilt Guild. Um, I've done Modern Patchwork, Quilty, just all these different magazines and fabric companies. Even even the super LDS companies, even they are okay with it. So I have never had pushback. All all the trepidation comes from me, what I'm feeling. But they have never said anything. I'm oh Abby, I'm always worried. I'm so worried. Mm -hmm. I'm like oh my gosh, it says ass, and sometimes I'll even like send them. Betty Crocker, A, and then do asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> they, they take it out. Uh-huh. And that they is put fascinating. I mean, I don't have a curse word in the name of my blog, but I did, like you, start a long time ago before everyone had a business. And um, I named my site While She Naps literally on a whim because it was the creative things I was doing while my daughter was napping, um, right. with no intention of it becoming a career. And, um, and like you, I've thought many times about changing it because it sounds like a mommy blog. So mm-hmm. I have a different, <laughs> a different, um, sort of assumption that comes with my name than you do, but it's still the wrong assumption, right? Like it's not, um, you're not using Betty Crocker mixes. You don't have a big butt. You're, <laughs> you're not a, uh, maybe a food blogger. I don't know if people would assume that, but you know, so there's an assumption that comes with while she naps, but I've kind of, um, I don't know if you follow the blog, um, my paper crane, but Heidi Kenny started her blog a very long time ago as well. And she's had an incredible career and still does. Um, but she doesn't make paper cranes. Um, she does makes a whole lot of other things, but paper (laughs) cranes are not part of her blog or her brand. But, um, I do think that in a certain way we, um, we abstract, you know, a name and it becomes something different from its literal meaning. Um, and so my hope is that while she naps represents, what it is now without it being literally while she naps. (laughs) Right. mm -hmm. Right. And I know a few people who have done that. Uh, Cheryl Arkison had um, nap time quilter Mm -hmm. and she, then she changed it to dining room empire. And I believe now it's just her name. And I'm seeing that trend where, and I did the same thing. I took Betty Crockerass and just made it John Carlton Bailey. Mm -hmm. But 99% 99% of the time people spell my last name wrong. So that wasn't working so well. And I was getting pushback. So I think, um, I don't take anyone's blog name literally or their website name literally until I look at what they make right. because, because of that. Right. I know that I know your daughter doesn't nap anymore. That's not <laughs> when you do your work. Like I totally know that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it, but yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to think about changing things. And I've basically decided to just stick it out just like you. So I understand yep. that feeling. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about the in-person connections. It sounds as though you met some great friends through being online as a quilter. Um, yep. And you went on to help form the Portland Modern Quilt Guild and you were the guild's first president. So I yes. wanted to hear a little bit about how you met you know, modern quilters in your area before there was an organized way to meet them? And then what it was like, like, what did it take to actually form a modern quilt guild in your area? Okay. Well, 
I actually didn't meet anyone that I knew online until Alisa, Hey Carlton and Latifa sent out this, Hey, we're forming guilds. And Elizabeth Hartman did, um, she ended up being the kind of director on that in Portland. So our first meeting that we had that she called, there were probably 25 of us meeting in a community room. And that's where I met people. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so-and-so from Flickr and you're so-and-so. And holy crap, I didn't know that you looked like that. <laughs> I thought you were totally someone different. And I love so, those moments when you feel like yeah. the internet just walked into the room. <laughs> right. And that's what it felt like. That's totally what it felt like. So from there, it was just fast and furious. You know, we had our first meeting and um, the... So I remember Susan Beale, who I didn't know at the time at all. I didn't even know her online presence was talking about a connection she had with a local art college. And she was able to secure meeting space there at PNCA where we had our meetings for years. And our second meeting, people who said they wanted to help out and help form the guild came. And I remember I was sitting at the end of the table and I was eating a hamburger and someone said, I think Jen should be president. And I look up, and I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah, you're the new president. <laughs> like, oh, crap. Because I left my house that day telling my husband that I wasn't going to be an officer. I was just going to help. Why and he looked think, at me well, and why, do you, why do you think that people turned to you and thought that? And sort of when someone did suggest it, they agreed. I think being a manager at the gap for so long, I have a presence and I'm not trying to be egotistical. I'm just saying I have a really, um, I, I have a really big presence when I'm in a room, I offer my opinion. I'm not afraid to talk in front of people talking in front of large crowds does not scare me. It's, I feel, I feel like I've always been a natural leader and that's what made me successful in my career before was being a leader. And people can see that when you're, when you're around me, I'm not a wallflower. I'm not shy. I'll definitely speak out and say my opinion. And at that point, I think people already saw that in me and no one else wanted to do it. No one else wanted to talk in front of people and I didn't care. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And it was, one of the hardest years of my life. Volunteering to create or run a guild is so hard, so hard. It, those leaders who spend, it, it's not five hours a week, it's 20 hours a week that you spend volunteering in setting up meetings and programs and trying to figure out 501c3. That's hard. Yeah. It becomes really a job. Yes, it does. <laughs> the unpaid job. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had pretty good officers, but you know, you get a bunch of women together and there's going to be some cat fights and we had some problems in our guild and it was around people, interpersonal skills. Thankfully I was a trainer and conflict manager. <laughs> I was at the gap at the gap, but and so I had some skills in order to try and facilitate that, but it's hard. It's hard working with different people, different personalities and styles and ages and backgrounds. And perhaps so, different, different priorities too, as yeah. to what, you know, different people want to get from the group experience. Absolutely. There were a lot of opinions that came out and Portland is, I believe, still the largest guild in the world. Oh, we wow. have a huge crafting community. I, when I was working for the Modern Quilt Guild, we, we were about 50 people bigger than the next largest guild. And I believe it's still the same way. Wow. I had no idea that it was so large. I mean, I knew that Portland was a popular area for creative people to yeah. live, but I didn't realize it was such a large guild. That's incredible. Yeah. And our meetings, we meet in a church gym now and they are always packed. There's got to be at least a hundred people there each time. It's insane. Wow. It's I'd love huge. to come sometime. That would be so fun. <laughs> I, I just would love to go and, um, and just see what it's like and, and yeah, and just sit through and, and watch what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's big. That's neat. So, and you were there, you know, on the ground floor, so good for you. I, That's really cool. 
I was, I was. And I'm, I'm thankful that I was able to help get people off the ground and see it's ebbed and flowed over the years. There's been great leaders and there's been people who weren't maybe so great, but we're at a point now where I think leadership is really strong and really committed and they have a great vision and they're really, they're really on board and they are kicking some, but they're doing a great job. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your love of curves in 2012, you found a painting from the 1950s and, um, was it an abstract painting? Uh, no, it was pretty controlled. It was a controlled painting. It's very much similar to the very first curved quilt that I made, um, which is on my website. And it was, uh, I was drawn to the colors and I was drawn to the movement of it. I'd never done a curve. I've never, I, I took a class at Sewing Summit. I don't. Oh yes. Sewing Summit, which was a, it was a fairly short lived sewing conference. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I took a improv curved uh, class there and I learned nothing. So I, I thought this is stupid. But then when I saw this, this painting, I was like, I want to make that into a quilt that really speaks to me, the colors, the movement, the mix of squares and curves. And at the time I was in a little sewing group called the yams. And we would meet at So Mama Sew once a month on Thursday. And So Mama Sew, um, my business partner, Kristen Link, that was her fabric shop. Yes. And I was super excited to be included and always wondered why I was included because everyone who was there was either a fabric designer or an author. So I'm like, hi, I'm Jen. But uh, I got over that pretty quick. So I saw this painting and I went one night and I, I walked up to Elizabeth Hartman and I said, Elizabeth, can you show me how to do this curve? I showed her what it was and she's like, oh yeah. She whipped open her bag and in her bag, she had plastic, a compass, a pencil and a ruler. (laughs) This is what you do. And she just, it it literally took her about three minutes to draw me a template to make this. And I I was like, whoa, (laughs) okay, I guess I'm doing this. She's like, okay, now take that template, trace it on the paper or on the fabric, cut it out and go sew it together. And so I did. And it was magic to me. I was like, oh my gosh, it worked. And I was so excited. I went over to, I'm like, it worked, it worked. And she's like, of course it did. (laughs) I'm like, oh yes, it did. It did. And she's like, now practice sewing them together and matching your points. So I sat down and I practiced and she gave me a few tips. And from there, I just, I haven't been able to stop. I, I dream in curves. I see curves everywhere I look and it may get old at some point and that's when I'll, I'll stop. But right now I still, I have, I have dozens and dozens of designs that I have yet to make with curves. And, you know, people don't necessarily associate quilting, quilting. or maybe traditional quilting with curves. They, you know, associate it with straight lines, maybe with diagonals, triangles, but not with curves because curves somehow seem hard um, so what right. kind of resistance do you hear from people who are like curves? I'm afraid of curves. Exactly that. I can't do curves. Curves are hard. And my response to them is you don't have the right tools. You have to have the right tool for the job. And that's what I taught at QuiltCon. I had a sew all the curves class where I gave them tips and tricks on how to sew curves. And every single person when they sewed their first curve was like, that's it. I just, I just totally did that. That was so easy. So give us a good tip um, that we can take away that would help us sew curves better. A good tip is to, well, I have lots of them though, Abby. I know, but pick <laughs> one. You can give us two if you oh, need to. Okay. So I'm going to say glue basting and using a seam guide. Those are my two. Okay. And it's theme guide, I actually sourced them from another country and found them and they are on my website. But a seam guide screws in to your, the top of your sewing machine by your presser foot. And it allows you to, um, to it, the fabric butts up against your seam guide. So you get a perfect seam. 
a perfect seam allowance. And it takes a lot of stress out of trying to keep your fabric perfectly under your presser foot. I see. Okay, right. So it gives you that exact quarter inch seam that you're looking for. Yes. And it really, it's strange how much pressure it takes off you, but it it really does. It just, you can just fly through and you can use it for a straight seams as well, but it really just allows you to feed your curve through quickly. Like I, I sew as fast, my curves as fast as I do my straight line stitching. Wow. Because seam guide. Yeah. Okay. And I have a few videos on Instagram under the hashtag. So all the curves, I show how I do my curves and it's, it's literally just starting and going and doing 1500 stitches per minute. Wow. Okay. All right. So we will um, refer people to that hashtag, which I'll put in the show notes as well. Um, and then you started to draft your own templates and have them manufactured. So um, will you talk a little bit about that process and sort of coming up with something that was original and original product and then sourcing? And I mean, it's, it's a long process. It is. And I'm still kind of fumbling through it because I'm resisting going with a big manufacturer. So I'm still having things done in Portland. My friend, Jill, her husband built architectural models for his living. So he had a laser cutter, a laser cutter. And so she drafted, I told her what I wanted. She drafted my three and a half inch curve and my six and a half inch curve. And people started wanting them. So I would text her and say, Hey, Jill, can you cut 25 more? And she's like, sure. So she'd cut 25 more. And she got, we got to the point where she needed to make some money on what she was doing. So she upped her price. So I had to up my price and it, she would drop them off while she'd take her kids to school because her, their school was by my house. So she'd drop them off, leave them on my porch and I'd pack them up and ship them out to people. And then, um, she ended up getting a job. So she needed to refer me to someone else. So I have a new person doing them for me and we are working through our process because he's not a quilter. He's an architect and it's, it's a little difficult to explain how things should work and seam allowance. And so, uh, he just finished drafting up the rest of my templates for me. So I have two and a half through six and a half on the half inch so two and a half, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half. And I'm picking those up from him on Sunday. So, but it's been a six month struggle with him trying to figure out how to make it work. And your, made it work. what is your resistance to using like a, the same, you know, manufacturer that makes some of the large like acrylic rulers or other templates for the quilting industry? To make it worth my while, I have to buy so many, and that scares me. I Buying see. 2,000 three-and-a-half-inch templates scares me. I'd rather buy 100 at a time. Mm-hmm. Even so if it's the- more expensive, but you would rather not have that capital investment. Correct. Yep. So, And that's simply what it is. Yeah. And I think you're not alone in that feeling because it is a huge investment. First of all, if they don't sell, they're going to be sticking, st- stuck in your garage for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of um, cash to, you know, put out up front when you're not a hundred percent sure what the future will exactly. hold. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Um, and what about patterns? Do you have, have you had um, <laughs> resistance to jumping into doing patterns or um, have you been able to resolve that feeling? I'm, I'm almost resolved with it. I I've always done patterns for magazines and I write patterns for Valerie Wells, which has been really fun or for Robert Kaufman for free on their website. Um, but I've resisted doing my own one because it's a time commitment. I don't want to sit in front of my computer writing a pattern. I'd rather just make my quilt and be super happy about it and love it. But at some point I decided I needed to, to stop just doing that and make a little money. And so that's where the pattern's coming in. And I finally, this year, I finally said, you know what, you just need to, as my mother-in-law says, suck it up and do it, sit down and write the pattern now. And I'm going to have page and pixel who is a company that will 
format your patterns for you. So they, when they came onto the scene, I was really interested in that because I'm not an illustrator. I don't use Illustrator. When I design my quilts, I use a program online called Quilt Canvas. So I don't know Illustrator, but I know that's what you need in order to print your patterns in a professional manner. So that's where I'll be using Page and Pixel. And I just, I just need to actually sit down and do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, it's physically doing it. It's the fear of failure. It's the fear of people going, why would you do that? That stops me, but I, I feel like I'm finally over that. And now I just need to actually do it. I, again, I think people just like fears around posting on Instagram. I think many, many people out there share all of those same fears um, yep. and same feelings around creating patterns. So thank you for sharing that because I think yeah. it helps people to just feel like they're not alone or crazy that they have those same fears and getting past them and being able to, to actually have this become uh, a business that you're really making good money from is it's hard. It's a big hurdle. So, right. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't think a lot of people share that because they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing, but we, we all have some fear in our careers and what we're doing and getting past it is just the biggest part. Absolutely. And also, you know, employing someone like Paige and Pixel and I use a graphic designer named Lindsay Bergevin, who does my pattern layouts as well. And just knowing that you don't have to do every step of it in order for it to still be yours. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was a big thing for me to overcome as well. So I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I want to get to your recommendations and you mentioned one of them just now. So let's do that one first, which was Quilt Canvas. And I've actually not heard of this software. So is this an app that you use online or uh, how does Quilt Canvas work? So Quilt Canvas came from um, thread bias. Thread bias was, oh the, yes. Thread bias was like yeah. the Ravelry for sewing. It was fairly yes, short lived. Yes. yes. This it was, was their quilt design product. Exactly. And, uh, Amanda and her brother, Alex, Alex is the, the brains behind it. And Amanda was the one who's like, this is what I want. Make it happen. And he did. And it's still up and running. And I, I know a few people that also use it. Michelle Wilkie does. And, it's a online subscription. So it's, I believe it's $10 a month and you can buy it by the month or by the year. So if you want to just use it for a month and then not use it the next month, you totally can. And you can design all kinds of things. They have fabric already preloaded. So you can go in there and type in, uh, any kind of fabric that you want. And it's, probably there. And if it's not there, you can upload an image to have it be there. So you can assign your blocks to have the fabric that you're actually going to be using. And have you tried EQ7? I have. I, I'm a Mac user. And when I had EQ7, they didn't have, um, they had an add-on that you had to download to use the software and I could just never make it work right. It, for me, for me, it wasn't very user-friendly. I couldn't click and figure out how to work it. Whereas with Quilt Canvas, I could just qu click around a few times and I got it. Got I it. figured it out. I see. Yeah. Okay, great. And so yes. the next recommendation you have is a spinning mat. Yes. What so, is this? So Elizabeth Hartman actually introduced this to me. She, she found it when she was doing uh, one of her sparkle quilts with a, a bunch of half square triangles that she had to square up. So it's a small 12 by 12 or 11 by 11 inch mat that actually spins around. So when you're squaring up a block, you put your square up ruler down, you cut two sides and you spin it without moving the block or the ruler and you cut your other two sides. Oh. So that way yeah. you're, you'd, you're not moving. You're, you're not moving the block. You're not messing up anywhere or going, wait, which way was my ruler? How do I, how did I put this? So I have three now actually that I use and I use them for one for travel and one my daughter is allowed to use and then one is just mine. <laughs> and you so wanted that's, to, that's awesome. You wanted to also recommend staying off the internet when you are in a slump and looking outside for inspiration. Yes. I think that's the biggest thing when people are feeling overwhelmed or not good enough or they're, they're stressed that they're, they're not 
doing as much as other people stay off the internet, get off Instagram, go outside, go to a museum, go to the zoo, walk around your neighborhood and find inspiration in a different place because the internet can be a really overwhelming place. Yeah. Agreed. That's great advice. So Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I so enjoyed talking with you. You too, Abby. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Yunt Street Glass. Yunt Street Glass makes handcrafted, eco-friendly jewelry and accessories from quality recycled glass, premium Portuguese cork, and argentium and sterling silver. Each piece is made for you to your specifications. Please visit youngstreetglass.com to view their entire line of products and learn more. And be sure to enter the promo code NAP, N-A-P, at checkout for a 15% discount on your next order at youngstreetglass.com. Thank you so much, Young Street Glass. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you.